folks, welcome to the Nobleman Podcast, episode number 43, and I am excited to have with us today as our guest, Patrick Morley. Now, many of you know Pat, uh, you've heard of him, you've probably read his book, many of you who listen to this podcast, uh, you've read The Man in the Mirror or some of the other books that he's written, or you've probably been to the Man in the Mirror website and uh, gleaned some information or found some ideas about how to invest in men. Well, we're going to hear from the guy today who started all of that, Dr. Patrick Morley. So, Pat, welcome to the Nobleman Podcast. Thank you very much, Mike, and it's an honor to be with you, and uh, you know how much I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a real fan, and so I'm excited to co-labor here with you today. Well, I am so thankful for you taking time to do this uh, from your, uh, I guess you're at home in Florida. That's where you are right now, I would guess. Is right. that correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I thought we would start off. Some people know your story, others don't, but your story kind of folds into this whole um, this whole question that we're asking about why men. So you were very active in business, successful in business, and then hit a hit a transition point and and moved into ministry. Give us a thumbnail sketch of how God moved you from uh, successful real estate business into ministry. What what took place there that made the made that transition happen so uh this is a lot a 12-hour podcast then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i think the the highlights are i uh in high school i decided that i wanted to make a lot of money so my first world view was that money will make me happy and success will solve my problems I pursued that pretty diligently, and the economy was very good. I was able to build one of Florida's 100 largest privately held companies by the age of 35, and I was miserable. You know, I I thought that that was going to satisfy every dream that I had. Along the way, I also had added Jesus to my life, but really just as another interest and an otherwise busy and overcrowded schedule. Yeah. When I finally uh, started coming to my senses, I, I called a timeout, which I figured, you know, I'm a pretty pretty smart guy. I'll, think, I'll take a couple of weeks and sort all this out and get my life on track. And it was as though God said, you know, now that I have you your attention, uh, I have some things I want to show you. And Mike, it was like I hit <laughs> a wall of molasses. Wow. For two and a half years, I couldn't move. I was just so stuck. And I came across Matthew 13, verse 22. I was reading the Bible every day, which is the third seed in the parable of the sower. And it says, but the seed that fell among the thorns is like the man who hears the word, which I was. Right. But but the worries of this life, and boy, did I have them. I wake up at 2 a.m. and boom, my mind's on. I'm up for the day. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of money, and boy, was I deceived. I was a knee-deep in materialism. Uh, choke the word and make it unfruitful. And I said, wow, that's my life. Yeah. So I made a very significant uh, refocus of my life. I wrote in the front of my Bible, I want to live the rest of my earthly life for the will of God. And really meant it, still do. But I thought I was doing, I mean, I was pretty full of hubris at the time. I kind of think I thought I was doing God, I must have thought I was doing God a favor, you know, lucky God. 
Right. Uh, what, what a trophy for God. Imagine how much he's going to be able to do now that he has me on his side, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And uh, man, I thought it was going to be, you know, remodeling or redecorating. And, and, and it was, but it was, but it was preceded by complete demolition, bulldozers all the way down to the foundation. And uh, like in Hebrews chapter, what is it? Uh, 10 or 12, 25 and 26, uh, that he will remove the created things. So what cannot be, uh, uh, he will remove the shakable things so that the unshakable may remain. And uh, so he removed all the created things from my life and has been rebuilding ever since. It's been a great trip. And so uh, my passion is to help other men along that way. There's a family story in there, too, but that's the business side. I think that's what you were asking. Yeah, and actually, I am aware of the family story, and I was going to get you to tell that as well, because when we think about why men and Mm -hmm. why we should make men a priority in the local church, that's very personal to you and your family history and what you saw with your dad, as I recall. Um, So... So tell me about how that story of what you observed with your dad's experience with the local church, because I think guys would be able to identify with that, um, kind of set the stage for you to be passionate about seeing churches disciple men. In 1926, uh, when my father was two years of age, the youngest of four children, his father abandoned the family. Mm-hmm. So my dad grew up in a home with a single mom, and she did a great job, but they were extremely poor. Uh, my dad, when he became a man, my dad went to work when he was six. He had two jobs at the age of six. He and his older brother worked on a bread truck, got up at 3 a.m., and then they had a paper out and a permanent tardy slip to school. Uh, so he had quite a work ethic. When he became a man, uh, my dad really wanted to, he never used the, the language we use now, but he wanted to break the cycle, yeah. you see. But he had this problem. He had never uh, felt the uh, scratch of his father's whiskers. Mm-hmm. He had never tossed a ball in the background, in the backyard. He had never, uh, you know, wrestled on the ground with his dad or had his hair tussled. Uh, never heard a truck door slamming shut at the end of the day, signaling that his father was about to reenter the family orbit. And so uh, what it meant to be a man was completely unexampled. And yeah. a man and a father to me and my three younger brothers was completely unexampled to him. So he, uh, he had the idea, rightly so, that uh, he would take our family to church he rightly thought that the church would be the should be, could be, ought to be the one place in the whole world where a man could take his family and find some help on how to be a godly man, a godly husband, and a godly father. And so the church we got involved in, however, did not have a vision to disciple my dad, and no one took him under their wing. No one showed him the ropes, but my dad, since he had this great work ethic, they put him to work, and he, I guess he must have thought this is what it means to be a good Christian, because he really poured himself into it. He was the top layman in the church by the age of 40. He got burned out, and uh, we left the church. Uh, I was in uh, the 10th grade at the time. My youngest brother was in the third grade. 
And over the next two years, the wheels just really completely came off the wagon. I quit high school. My next brother quit high school. Uh, he eventually died of a heroin overdose. Uh, my next brother never held a job for more than six months until he was 50. And my uh, youngest brother is a recovering alcoholic and divorced and a hermit. And uh, my dad just never saw it coming. So, so the reason I'm so passionate about men's discipleship I have come to see that, 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 that my dad would tell you that he's responsible for what happened to his family. And I think every man is, but I I've come to see that the church is culpable right. uh, for what happened. And, uh, but the church is not the, uh, the enemy, the church is the solution. The, the, you don't abandon the solution no. <laughs> just because it's not working at the present time. Well, something that you said there just a moment ago, you said the church did not have a plan to disciple my dad. I mean, that's a, I, I, it, it, am I saying that the way that you did or very similar? I, yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and so that's what I know Man in the Mirror is all about. That's what I'm having conversations about all the time is, can a man walk through a door in this church and pretty quickly find a pathway to get on some sort of strategy to grow in his relationship with Jesus and his capacity to lead himself and his family. Um, but so many churches are absent that plan or that strategy. That's the exact mission statement. If you almost said our exact man of the yeah. mayor's mission statement, almost exactly. I just read it a few moments ago. So I, <laughs> I did a little bit of homework. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, honestly, Mike, I'm, I, you know me, I, I've been at this for, for 35 years. I'm a one trick pony. Yeah. I have one trick and men's discipleship is my trick. That's right. I, I can't do anything else. <laughs> well, so when, we, when I ask this question, why men? Uh, I mean, your your father's story is compelling. You've spoken with men, you've invested, you've uh, talked with pastors and churches. If you could answer that question for a pastor who might be listening or a leader, why should I invest in men? I, I know we've got another 12-hour podcast here, but uh, what, <laughs> what would you say? Well, I, I'm going to give you the, I'll give you the other half of the story then. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and, and this is why men... When I was married to my wife, Patsy, uh, she wanted to marry a Christian, and, and I wanted to marry her. I'm a salesman. <laughs> I'm a salesman, and I, I realized that my answers for her Christian questions were not satisfying her. So like any good salesman, I stopped answering, and I just started asking questions and drawing her out and figuring out what kind of answer she wanted, and then I just lied. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I basically I tricked her into th thinking that I was a, a Christian. Yeah, I, I think honestly she liked me. I think she wanted to be tricked too, to be honest. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> we won't go there much further. I think it'd be good. <laughs> Just leave that alone. <laughs> Just leave that alone. But the point is, within a few weeks of our wedding date, it was very obvious we had an ambiguity of terms yeah. about what it meant to be a Christian. She had gone forward at 11 years of age at a Billy Graham crusade and never looked back. So I uh, eventually, within a few months, <clears throat> was desperate for some help. And I, too, like my father, knew that a church is the place that a man can go, should be the place a man can go, the one place in the world that a man can go to find help on how to be a godly man, a godly husband, and if he has children, a godly father. So 
uh, one Sunday morning, I asked my wife if she wanted to go to church. And uh, as soon as she revived with some smelling salts, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we started visiting different churches. So we, we ended up walking up the front sidewalk to a local church, um, a Methodist, a little Methodist church here in the Central Florida area. And when I reached out my hand for that front door, that front door handle. Mm. Now, let's just pause and think about what a sacred, sanctified moment that is. Mm -hmm. Pastors, if you're listening, leaders, men's leaders, and men, and women, uh, it, just think about the sanctity of that moment. Think about, first of all, all the prayers of all the grandmothers, mothers, aunts, sisters, who in some cases have for decades been praying that God would send someone to help that man. Hmm. Second, think about how God, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, has been sovereignly orchestrating the events of that young man's life to bring him to that front door. Third, think about how challenging it is for a young man to swallow his pride mm. and admit that he needs help. And then finally, fourth, think about all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, which have been working against that moment happening to prevent it from happening. So when, when that young man actually reaches out and his hands first touch, physically touch that front door handle, that is a holy moment in the kingdom of God. Wow. So in my dad's case, as I've already said, they weren't ready for him. But in the church that we, when I opened that front door, Mike, man alive, they were so ready for me. They, they, were, they were on me like special ops, covert Delta Force. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Now, they, in reality, they were uh, insurance salesmen and accountants and yeah. landscapers and people like that. But, I mean, they were, they were prepared. They had an intentional plan. They, they knew why I was there, and they had answered four questions. And pastors and leaders, if think about these questions. You know, when a young man reaches out for the front door handle of our church, why did he just do that? Mm-hmm. What are the problems he's trying to solve? What does he need from us? Right. How can we give it to him? If you can answer those four questions, you can have a powerful, life-changing impact. And I will tell you, because those men, there had been obviously some leaders at that church who had sat around a table and discussed this question, these questions, and they were so ready for me. And they were men. They took me under their wing. They discipled me. <clears throat> they showed me how to be a man, a husband, a father. So these guys, they were, they were absolutely ready for me. And so the difference in my experience and my father's experience is so radical. It's just not fair. Yeah. It's yeah. not right. It's wrong. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is that the, my DNA and my dad's DNA are the same. It was the diff, the difference was the DNA of the of these two churches. Right. 
And so I just don't want to have any man ever go through what I, what my dad went through ever again, uh, if it, insofar as I can help. Well, and, and so there's so many ways that we can go with this, but let me, let me hit on this. Um, I have heard you say or read, and maybe both, evangelism without discipleship is cruel. And yeah. so we like to count the men who claim Christ and say, well, he's, he's chosen Jesus. But if we don't have a plan to take that man down the road in his understanding of what that means and how to execute it, first of all, in his own life, to live under the authority of the Lord Jesus, and mm-hmm. then to lead himself well, to, to live a selfless life, and then love his wife, if he has one, the way Christ loved the church, and then invest strategically in his children, or even spiritual children, then we, we've we stopped short of, we've bunted at the very best, and not not come close to driving the ball the way that we should in terms of helping a man grow. So speak to that. Yeah, I uh, back to the statement, evangelism without discipleship is cruel. Uh, I think you've explained that very well. An analogy might uh, also help drive it home as well. It's, it's kind of like, picture this, evangelism without discipleship, it's like enlisting a man into the army and then issuing him a rifle that he never learns how to clean and shoot. Right. He's yeah. not going to be much good on the day of battle. And this is this is exactly what's been happening in uh, the area of uh, men's discipleship. Now it's changing, right? It would be pretty discouraging to me if things right. weren't a lot better. And, and here's the thing: we have you know these men who are area directors all around the country that work for churches, and we we we're not aware of a single pastor anywhere in America who doesn't want to see their men discipled. Exactly. And so it's not a question of desire. Uh, it, it's it's just simply a question of having some intention, like you said, intentional plans to help them uh, execute their desire. Well, and that's where, and that's where we as a and you too, you know, you have the same yeah. kind of ministry we do. We're we're men specialists. We we help churches with intentional plans. So um, let me go down this road because um, a lot of churches would say we have a men's ministry and that's our effort to reach men and invest in men, but. I know that Man in the Mirror, your team was the first that I really heard make a big deal about the difference between having a men's ministry and being about men's discipleship. So talk about that um, very subtle difference in word choice and what it really means in the big scheme of things. All right. So if you're listening and let's say you have a men's pastor in your church, or maybe you're the men's pastor, if you were the best men's pastor in America— what percentage of men do you think you would be able to get involved in your men's only ministry? Well, we happen to have hired the, the, the best paid men's pastor in America, a guy named Jeff Kasaya. And at the, at the time that he heard about No, uh, no Man Left Behind, our, our, our model, yeah. after nine years of brilliant effort, he had 25% of his men involved in men's discipleship. Uh, as an aside, 18 months after adopting the model, he was up to, uh, no, I think it was, no, it was uh, two and a half years after adopting the model, he had 85% of his men involved in the separation. But, but the, the, here's the thing, where did we ever get the idea that 
putting men off into a silo by themselves was going to be the way that we would solve the issues that uh, men face. It's true that, you know, in, 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 a, in a given church, somewhere between six men who are willing to meet at O'Dark 30 on Wednesday morning, and maybe 25 guys who are willing to get together once a month to eat burned pancakes, um, that's really, uh, you, in most churches, that's about the limit of the men's only activity. But here's the thing, pastors, men's leaders, there is so much other discipleship going on in your churches already. Just because it, it involves women or families doesn't mean that men are not being discipled. They are being discipled. Right. So the first thing we try to do is just to help uh, pastors and leaders understand all the things that are going right in the church. You know, uh, this is uh, this is probably, I don't know, uh, unorthodox at, at best. And uh, <laughs> oh, I'm excited already. And irreligious <laughs> in probability. But if you were the devil, and back in the 1950s, when all these men's only ministries were getting going, you know, if you were the devil, it was either your idea or you were cheering them on like crazy. Because you, the, the devil was thinking, okay, pastor, you start that men's fellowship group and you check the box. And here's the deal, pastor, I'm willing to make with you. I, I, I will help you develop those 20% of your men into on-fire disciples for Jesus Christ as long as you continue to give me unfettered access to the other 80%. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm making that a, a, a little bit uh, up as a story, but in practice, that's about what happened over the last 70 years. So if that's the case, how do you justify your Friday morning men's Bible study? It's a men's only Bible study, right? I mean, how does, how does that sort of thing fit into the picture based on what you just said. I mean, give us some some context and and some thought about how these pieces all fit together in a bigger puzzle. Yeah, well, of course, there are some men who do respond to men's only kind of activity. And even uh, in a, uh, yeah. let's say, there's a couple's home group. Yeah. And a man really fits in that couple's home group well. We, we would encourage <clears throat> the men to go off into one of the bedrooms once a month and talk about some of the men's only things that are going on. Uh, there are things that men talk about with men that they can't talk about around women, and there are things that women talk with other women about that they can't talk about around men. And so there has to be some of that gender-specific stuff that goes on. So we just create this space for those conversations within the context and the DNA of the larger church at work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um, so let me ask you this. You mentioned when that guy reaches for the door, one of the things he's asking, one of the questions is, what are the problems that he's facing that he is looking for help with? Well, your original book is over 30 years old now, The Man in the Mirror, and the, and the subtitle, I've got a marked up copy right here, Solving the 24 Problems That Men Face. Um. I, probably most every pastor that listens to this has got this book on their shelf somewhere. They've, they've at least handled it. Um, are the problems still the same, Pat, given the context of our culture right now? Are we still wrestling with the same problems, or have they multiplied, magnified, 
morphed. Oh, Mike, you know, they're completely different. Men are so have changed so much since the since the age of Solomon. Men are so different yeah. than the age of Solomon. You know, it is interesting. Of course, the cultural milieu in which we live uh, constantly changes, but the uh, core motivations of the human heart never change. That's right. So uh, that's why a man, pastor, that's why uh, your men can pick up the book of Ecclesiastes. And they can read Solomon's words, meaningless, meaningless. Yeah. Everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And they can feel like it's speaking right, right to their heart at that very moment. Yeah. yeah. So what do you, let's, let's move to the current culture a little bit. Toxic masculinity is a word that has, or a phrase that's popped up over the last couple of years. Um, I know that there are churches and ministries that struggle to lean into doing anything with men because the whole topic of manhood and masculinity just seems like it should be hands off, um, and and they're fearful of it. And I and I say this because I've got sons that uh, in a university setting have brought up, hey, why don't we do some men's studies? Why don't we study biblical manhood? And there'll be folks around them that say, oh, I don't, I don't know that we can do that. That's a little dangerous. Um, what encouragement do you have for pastors and leaders to lean into that and come face-to-face with this toxic masculinity issue and move toward true masculinity and really help some guys understand that? Well, the first thing is that uh, you can't be a leader if you don't have confidence in what the calling is. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's just to settle the issue that this is something that is in the heart of God. You, you know that the, uh, the, all, all of the um, general scientific research, social sciences, the soft sciences, sure. all the research has been done on the impact of a family without a, uh, a father figure. That's right. Without a father uh, in, in the family. And so the idea that the culture is going to dictate that we don't address the, the culture is aware that we have a problem, but the culture is also saying that they don't want to address it. So somebody has to provide leadership, pastors, men's leaders. It's up to you. It's up to me. We're the ones that have to lead out, but I don't think we have to be mean spirited about it. So I, uh, I'll tell you a story. I had a reporter call me up. She was the, religion editor for the local newspaper back back when they were paying somebody to do that kind of work. <laughs> and she asked me this question. We have our Bible study, and then there was another big Bible study in downtown Orlando that John Tolson from The Gathering was leading. And uh, she said, do you really think we need to have two men's Bible studies in Orlando? <laughs> and I laughed. I said, look, you know, not, not only do we have room for two, we could use 100 more just like them immediately. And, uh, she, and so she said, well, why do, why, do you think we, uh, why do you think we should be focusing on men at all? And I said, well, I, and then I believe the Holy Spirit gave me this answer. I said, with, with no rancor, I said, well, I, I believe that our ministry exists as an answer to the prayers of all those grandmothers and mothers and wives who in some cases for decades have been praying that God would send someone to help the men in their lives. And that really seemed to satisfy her. 
And so I also know of pastors who have said that same kind of thing to uh, the women in their church who uh, wondered why the pastor was spending so much time with the men. Um, the man for whom the No Man Left Behind model is named, Pete Albertson, uh, an emeritus director of A Man in the Mirror, is a, is a pastor. And that's how he uh, handled it with the women in, in his church. Uh, and they, it was just very satisfying to them that he was wanting to help the men because then the men could be the men that God called them to be in the home and in the marriage and so forth. Yeah, that's a trap that a lot of pastors fall into, and you go back to this courage and leadership scenario, because I, I've spoken to pastors who say, hey, I don't feel comfortable investing in men as a priority because I'm going to get bombarded from all of these other factions of the church that say, um, why aren't you paying attention to this or that piece? But I, I believe it's true that when you invest in the men— there is a downstream positive result that impacts every other aspect of life in the home and the church. So how do you affirm that with pastors? So pastors, men's leaders, I'm going to give you the paradigm that we use. I remember the day that I first said this out loud. And so it took me 25 years, uh, not 20, about 23 years, I think it was, for me to formulate this in my mind. So this is this is the best I've got, right? <laughs> And it's a great way to argue for men's discipleship. So here it is. And it's a series of rhetorical questions. Ready? Yeah. Can you picture any way of ever getting the world right if we don't get the church right? Probably not. If that's true, can you picture any way of ever getting the church right if we don't get families right? Probably not. If that's true, is there any way of ever getting families right if we don't get marriages right? Well, that's family systems theory 101, kind of like the first principle they teach you. Yeah. Get the marriage right, then the family pretty much falls in line. If that's true, can you picture a way, any way of ever getting marriages right, Mike, unless we can figure out how to fix these women? <laughs> 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 well, we laugh because, you know, uh, you know, every now and then a woman does sort of rip her family apart. But it really is about the men. Pastors and leaders, here it is. You get men right, you get marriages right, you get marriages right, you get families right, you get families right, you get churches right, you get churches right. And then you really do have the ability to impact the world. It, in some sense, it really is all about the men. It's not all about the men, but if you take a look pastors and leaders at virtually any problem in the world today, from the mega problems of racism and social justice and injustice, and, uh, and uh, all the way down to fatherlessness and, and everything in between, if you go far enough back upstream, you will find somewhere upstream a man who is failing. And ironically, not a man who wants to fail generally. I, know, I mean, I, personally, I don't know anybody that fails on purpose. Right. Right. Yeah. But they're looking for help. These guys, in, in many cases, have have sought. They're looking for a way to to win. They don't want to lose. They want to win. And they haven't found the, the, the right way to do that. Well, we've mentioned no man left behind. Folks, I just want to, to let you know that as part of the trajectory that we're on with our podcast uh, the, during the first quarter here, 
in March, I plan to have Brett Klimmer, who's the now the president of Man in the Mirror, on to talk about the no man left behind model as we we get into the to the subject of how to reach men. So we're going to we're going to get into that. But Pat, I've also mentioned your Friday morning Bible study. You just mentioned it um, that you had one and um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the gathering uh, also was hosting a Bible study in the Orlando area. You've been doing that for about 30 years, I think. Is that correct? Mm, yeah, 35. 35, 35 years. years. So that's a long time to invest in men. And one of the things that that is challenging is pastors often have a short time horizon. And, I, you know, I have to start a ministry, I have to do something with men. But would you speak to this idea that investing in men strategically and intentionally needs to be something that you're thinking about, not on a six-month planning schedule, but a five-year trajectory or 10 years, you need to be willing to see the long-term investment and the results of that, and maybe share a story or two about what you've seen over the long haul of making strategic, intentional investments in men. We had our leader meeting this morning. Uh, We have about uh, 20 or 25 tables at our Bible study. We also do it online, by the way. Um, and we've got people, you know, all over the world that are in the Bible study, but the live group, which is not meaning live right now, um, because of the uh, COVID thing. Uh, but our leaders this morning, about 20 leaders, 25 leaders, something like that. One of them was sharing, uh, a story and I won't give you all the details, but when he was 14 years of age, his grandfather and father said, son, it's time for you to become a man. So they crossed the border into Mexico, paid for uh, a prostitute Mm -hmm. for him. And then at 14 years of age, he watched his grandfather and his father also go into that same room and watch them do the same thing that he had done. And that was how he he grew up. And uh, he continued that life of promiscuity for the first 17 years of his marriage. And then finally, it all came to a head. And he, uh, long story short, became a Christian and then moved to Orlando. And uh, six months later, we picked him up in the Bible study. So he's been with me for uh, 34, 33 or 34 of those 35 years. Wow. And he's one of our best leaders. And to watch the transformation of his life as when he first came to us, he still had that new car smell. I mean, you know, he was brand new Christian. And to watch the other guys love on him and pour into his life, and then watch him raise his family, and then to watch his two children uh, walking with the Lord, uh, it's been a, an extraordinary experience. I, I, I think it was Richard Foster said in Celebration of Discipline, uh, our tendency is to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year, but underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. So uh, a lot of people out there trying to be famous and to figure out how to make a name for themselves. My, 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 one of my core values and philosophies, and I think also of the ministry, uh, is the idea of steady plotting, steady plotting, and, and just to be faithful. I, I always, whenever we have our area directors together, every single time, I always remind them that God is calling us to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Not, not to produce a particular outcome. So pastors, leaders in your churches, I would just ask you, with regard to your men, what does faithful look like? 
and then and then go do that. Wow. Well, I, I am so thankful. You mentioned um, your Friday morning Bible study. We'll put a link to that in our show notes so that so that folks can get to that, as well as um, links to your books and, and other resources. So let me let me finish with this question, Pat. As we talk about pastors and leaders, you just mentioned obedience. You know, we've seen a number of pastors fall this year and um, in in past years, I mean, you've probably kept up with that. I, I know we all do. We hate to see Satan win another pastor. And and I think it's important for us to be reminded that these pastors are men too. And while they um, wear the responsibility, carry the mantle of shepherding, they still need to be ministered to and cared for. They need to be um, in involved with other men who are going to shape them and sharpen them and encourage them and and help them to walk faithfully even as they lead the flock. So give a word of encouragement to pastors about taking care of themselves as men, as husbands, as fathers, um, so that they are aware of the enemy's work to try and derail them and destroy them and their their family, their witness, their life. Give a word of encouragement or um, admonition to pastors in that regard? I think pastors probably have enough admonitions without me giving them another one. I, I, my ministry is really the ministry of encouragement and hope, and that, that's what God has called me to do. Every heart is a hungry heart, right? Encouragement is the food of the heart, and every heart is a hungry heart. I find that pastors are one of the most neglected people groups in mm -hmm. the world. We have about a half a million pastors or so in the United States. They are one of the most neglected people groups that we have. They are constantly giving, and often people feel like because they put $2 in the offering plate that that gives them the right to speak to their pastors like they're hired slaves or something like, like, like that. And uh, I find it very offensive myself the way that some people – treat their pastors. Right. Um, and so I would just say to the, the pastor, you know, you do have to take responsibility for your own private life. Uh, nobody else is going to, uh, people will feel sorry for you, pastor, if you have a moral failure or you get divorced or you have, you know, uh, children that go astray or you have financial problems or something like that goes wrong. They'll feel sorry for you, but ultimately, you're the one that has to take responsibility for that. So how is that encouraging? <laughs> well, it's encouraging to just know that you have permission to take care of yourself. Uh, you, you have permission not to work 80 hours a week. Uh, you have permission to say, no, uh, I can't do that. You don't have to give a reason. Sometimes, you know, you do have to sort of you can't say, "Well, I just need to. Uh, I, need, I just need uh, two hours to myself today. I just have got to get that in." You don't have to tell people, "I'm going to be watching TV or reading a book." Yeah. That's why I yeah. can't meet with you to talk about this problem. But that's what doctors do, and and uh, and you are spiritual doctors, so you have permission, I believe, to do that. To take care of yourself, so that you can be yeah, to to be available to your Lord, your family, and and then finally the flock. 
So good stuff. Yeah. You know, they, they, they say to the, the business guy or the worldly guy, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? Well, what does it profit a pastor to gain the whole flock and yet uh, give up his own spiritual vitality? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so, I, you know, Pat, we, we talked to pastors about that, but guys, could I encourage you to reach out to your pastor with a, a note of encouragement, a, a text or something? Don't, don't say, can I come and talk with you for an hour, because that may compromise his time even more. But just send a note, do something to let him know that uh, you're, you've got him on your mind, you're praying for him, you're encouraging him, and you are for him um, and lifting him up. So I think that would be a way that we can bless our pastors. One little idea on that. Uh, now, my, my pastor is retired, but for, ten, for, the, for the last 10 years of his uh, ministry, I, uh, I, I asked, said, would, you, uh, would it be useful to you if I were to send you a, an email every Sunday morning before you preached with a, a prayer? And so I did that. And would you believe for 10 years, not only did I send that prayer every week, but he <laughs> responded every single time. Oh, wow. Because it meant so much to him to, to know that one of his, uh, and I'm not an officer or an elder or a deacon or anything like that. I'm just uh, just a guy in the church. Well, but an encourager. Yeah. yeah, an yeah. encourager. So, uh, guys, we can all play that role to uh, be liberal with encouragement. That's awesome. Well, Pat, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be guarded with times here, and, um, and we'll shut this down. But thank you so much for being with us today to speak. Uh, Speak some encouragement to some guys, uh, some pastors and leaders about the value of investing in men as a priority. Well, Mike, it's been my honor and my pleasure. Man, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, I pray that God will make your ministries flourish. And I pray God's favor on your work, on your ministry, on your life. Uh, I would much rather have God's favor than be skillful. Hmm, that's powerful. Well, men, thank you for joining with us for the Nobleman uh, podcast, episode number 43 here with Patrick Morley talking about why men. Next week, we'll be on episode 44 with another local pastor talking to him about why it's important to invest strategically in men. So join us next week for the Nobleman podcast. God bless you, men. Thank you so much. 